in accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. When I joined the Bureau, I was a CPA, and so I automatically got the white-collar type jobs. I was on a white-collar squad. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life and Account, the Where Accountants Go podcast. That clip was from Fred Olivares, CPA, retired FBI special agent, and entrepreneur. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode if you've ever considered or maybe currently considering looking into the FBI or forensic accounting in general as a career. We've had a couple guests with sort of similar backgrounds, but Fred's story is a little different because he was a CPA when he started with the FBI, and therefore he was on the white collar squad from day one. He gives us good insight into what life in the FBI is like when you have an accounting background and even mentions how attractive that type of a background is and that type of experience is to the Bureau. An accounting degree and a little experience can get you started in a very lively career, perhaps too lively even for some of us. Fred has some really good stories. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit our website for additional episodes on the subject of forensic accounting and governmental work as well. We've done a few over the last year and a half. That website is whereaccountantsgo.com. Once again, it's www.whereaccountantsgo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Fred Olivares, CPA and retired special agent with the FBI. Well, hello, Fred. Thank you for working out of time to talk. I really appreciate you making time for the audience. Oh, you're welcome, Mark. Well, for our audience, this is going to be a real treat. It's been a while since we had someone that spent a substantial amount of their accounting career in the government sector. And I know forensic accounting is really of interest to many of you. So this interview with Fred Olivares is coming at a really good time. I'm going to leave the details for Fred to share as I do with all our guests. But just to give you a little teaser, Fred spent a substantial amount of his career with the FBI and white collar crime work. Fred, I definitely want to get into your long career with the FBI and also what you're doing now, of course, but I don't want to cheat the audience either by you know, skipping out on the early story. Back in the beginning, what initially led you to think about accounting as a possible career in the first place? Well, I grew up in San Antonio, and my mentor when I was in high school was my second cousin. He had an accounting degree from UT, and I looked up to him, and you know, and I always wanted to go to UT, University of Texas at Austin, and I always wanted to go there. I asked him for advice, and of course, he encouraged me to go into accounting, and I followed his advice and you know, followed my dream and going up to Austin to go to school, and pretty much that was the basis. I mean, that was the basis of me going to accounting. What was, I guess, the selling point on his side? Was he an accountant or? Yes, he was. He was an accountant. He had graduated from University of Texas with a county degree, and he encouraged me to go up there and major in accounting. He said it was a great, great career, and 
a great career path that was very, very open. I had a lot of, you know, potential for multiple career paths. And funny story, you know, I, I was trying to figure out, you know, what to do with my life. And he said that, and I told my mom that, and, and she says, you know what, you'd probably be very good at that because you're always overlooking what I do. And so, <laughs> so, you know, so she, she was all for that. <laughs> You should be an auditor, son. <laughs> you should you should be an auditor, son. That's it. it's kind of her words, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Well, hey, thank God for good family advice. That, that, that Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you go through school. Did you go straight through? And if so, I guess, what was your first job out of college? I graduated in 1983, which was a bad year for accountants, if anybody's mm-hmm. been around that long. It was a recession, and I was out competing with CPAs for jobs. And pretty much my first job out of college was at a small bank in South Texas. It's called First Nichols National Bank. They had been mandated by the OCC, the Office of Comptroller of Currency, to get an internal audit program in place and install an internal auditor. And so that was my first job. And I was, Padgett Stratman actually taught me the internal control procedures. So, you know, they set up the procedures, you know, they said, you're going to do these, you know, internal audits for or these disciplines like loans, checking and uh, whatever, and reports to the board, your findings. And that's what I did. I did that for a couple of years and continue that story. You know, I speak to accounting students because I lecture at, at UT on fraud. And up to that point, I had never, ever, ever thought about going to law enforcement. That was the farthest thing away from my mind. And one day, an agent who has since retired, his name it's Fritz Boney, he came into the bank to give a security presentation. And so I started talking to him and figured out this is very interesting what he was doing. And, you know, frankly, you know, I was young, I was young doing some soul searching. And, and at that time, I was saying, all right, is my life going to be, you know, doing these audits and making these recommendations? And that's it. You know, sometimes they're implemented, sometimes they're not, you know, but that's the job for better or for worse at that point in time. So, you know, just a soul searching and, and I said, you know what, maybe my life can be something where I may really make a difference. And that's what I decided to do. So I applied to the Bureau and it was a long process because at, at that point, you make the initial application, they determine whether or not you qualified. Then, you know, the recruiter called you up and said, you know, you're eligible, you know, you need to take a written test. So I took the written test, scored pretty well on that. So they said, you know, now you need to go to your panel interview. And to, to get into Quantico at that time, you know, your scores that were a combination of your written test and your panel interview. And so what happened was that my written tests were good, and I took my first panel and I blew it, blew it completely. So that put me a year in a, in a penalty box where I couldn't apply again. Then I took the panel, you know, I got the phone call from the recruiter. He said, are you still interested? And I said, yes, I am. And took the panel again and made it. So, and the rest is history. You know, entered on duty in June of 1988, and 26 years later, I retired. Wow. You know, I've always been under the impression that if you want to go to work for the FBI, you sort of have to apply and then go to work somewhere else for a while while you wait to get through the process. You know, the Bureau requires... To get in, you have to be a United States citizen. You have to have a college degree from an accredited university. You have to, of course, you know, qualify 
just like I said, you know, to the written test and a panel interview. And have to have a clean drug record. And pretty much you have to be qualified for top secret clearance, which all FBI agents have. So, and you also have to have three years of work experience. So that's where that oh. work experience comes in. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. Okay. Yep. I'm curious, if you hadn't have had that issue on the with the first panel, how long would the process have been? Probably would have taken a year because the background is very extensive. You know, they actually go out and do what's called a neighborhood. You know, they go out to your neighborhood and, you know, ask your neighbors what kind of kid you were. And, you know, you fill out this extensive, extensive form. And it was, you had to put down everybody that you lived with for over 30 days, you know, all your relatives, you know, all your jobs, you know, they ask you every question in the world and just to see, you know, if you qualify or not. Okay. Okay. So what all did you do while you were with the FBI for that many years? Well, you know, like I said, I process out of here, out of San Antonio. Actually, it was Austin. I processed out of Austin because I was living there at the time and went to my first office after I graduated from the academy was in San Diego, spent 10 years on San Diego. Then it was transferred back to Texas, where I was in McAllen, where I was a supervisor for five and a half years. And then my last 10 years were here in San Antonio. But when I went, when I joined the Bureau, I was a CPA. And so I automatically got the white collar type of jobs. I was on a white collar squad. And in the Bureau, you know, the, the squads are divided up into the classifications, criminal classifications or whatever classifications there are. So, like, there's a squad that dresses white collar, and it could also be more specific. It might be Ponzi schemes or investor fraud or, you know, FCPA. Some of the larger offices have squads strictly devoted to FCPA. And then, or you might be working drugs or you might be working violent crimes or on what we call the dark side, you might be working counterterrorism or something, you know, something like that. You might be working intelligence. But, you know, the thing that's very attractive to the Bureau, with the Bureau, is that you can be, it's very diverse. I mean, we have CPAs working drug matters. You know, we have CPAs working counterintelligence. But, you know, majority of my career was working white collar. I did work drug-related public corruption in McAllen. I did work violent crime in McAllen. But one of the interesting things about it is that, say, for instance, right now in Austin, there's a string of bombings going on. And that's like an all-hands-on-deck. So I can guarantee you, no matter what your background is, all those agents are working that bombing. They're working their covering leads for that. You put their caseload aside, and everybody's working that. They're handling all those leads in that bombing case. Wow. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Okay. So when you were in the white-collar crime area, did you have a specific type, like you were mentioning Ponzi schemes, for instance, or, mm-hmm. or was it sort of all across the board? No, it was all across the board. Back then, you know, I cut my teeth on, on bank fraud. So teller cases, you know, a lot of tellers ripping money off from banks, thought they can get away with it. So that really gave me the, the foundation, running the case through the federal system, Interviewing people, interviewing people that, you know, stole the money. That gave me the foundation. Then I raised my hand to work the big Ponzi scheme in San Diego, which was $250 million and 1,500 investors. So I worked with that, and that resulted in a conviction, multiple convictions, really. And worked some public corruption in San Diego. I also had a big public corruption case in there. It involved a personal injury lawyer that was paying three judges for favorable rulings. So I had that. So that was a public corruption case. Then when I also had 
some cases in McAllen that was very, very diverse. Of course, we did have a lot of border corruption cases there. But we also had a lot of healthcare fraud in McAllen. So worked that. Up here in San Antonio, it was a lot of public corruption cases. You know, I worked the San Antonio Housing Authority public corruption case, Bear County Housing Authority public corruption, and worked some other mortgage fraud cases here in town also. My gosh. <laughs> well, you were there a long time. <laughs> yeah, it was 26 years, so it was, you know, very diverse, you know, very, wow. it covered a lot of cases. What did you most enjoy about your work with the Bureau? You know what? Just the diversity. I mean, every day was different. The challenges were different. You know, the Bureau saying is that, you know, small cases, small problems, but big cases, big problems. You were dealing with, you know, multiple agencies, dealing with, you know, United States Attorney's Office, which are the prosecutors of the case. And, you know, one of the best things is, you know, you formulated, you know, you develop a lot of friendships, professional friendships with people over the years that, you know, they, you know, in my instance, they knew I could get the job done. And, you know, we pretty much built a case together and ran a case through the, you know, the federal court system. That was fun. I mean, just a lot of fun. Hmm. You know, I, I know this is going back a ways, but, you know, back around, you know, when you first started with the Bureau, was there anything you found surprising or anything that just you weren't You know expecting? what? As far as surprising, I always tell people, you know, always tell brand new investigators, you're going to be surprised, you know, because you go through a case and you always, you know, especially a big case, you say, I didn't see that coming. You know, there's always some development out there that, that surprises you. It just does. It, you know, and you roll with it. You just roll with it. You know, you roll with that surprise. Yeah, that's it. You just roll with it and just, you know, you have, you know, you roll with that new niche or that new, for instance, I'll give you a story. We did a public corruption case here in town. And it was the San Antonio Housing Authority. It made the paper, so it's, it's out there. Pretty much what that case involved was that contractors were paying bribes to property managers at San Antonio Housing Authority. And we had developed our – we had certain people on the radar. We knew that was going on. We had a source pretty much learning with the case. So he, he was telling us who was paying bribes. So we, we were targeting those people specifically as our roles dictate. We just, you know, targeting them specifically as to paying bribes to them. And he was, this guy was actually paying bribes for us under our direction. But one day I got a call, you know, it was not the middle of the night. It was in, in evening hours. And he goes, he told me, he says, you never guess what happened. And I said, what? He goes, I was down at this other project, this other, other Saha development. And he goes, the property manager there came up and says, told me, you're, you're going to need to pay me a bribe. And it's kind of like, okay. And so this guy had never, the new subject was never on our radar. <laughs> and so it was kind of like, we didn't even know he was out there. He hit up our guy cold. And so, all right, you know what? Guess what? We targeted him and, you know, got a conviction on him. But, you know, it was things like that, that, you know, the little curveballs that, you know, you just learn, learn to roll with. That was one of the funny ones. I mean, it was really, really un- unexpected, but. That was just the San Antonio Housing Authority at the time was very systemic with corruption. Wow. You know, just to make sure we're getting the full picture, and because it's easy for someone on the outside to glamorize it a little bit. I mean, were there ever times you felt like your life was in danger? There was a couple of times. Um, you know, but in the Bureau, we had a saying. You know, if we did a witness interview, it was a one-on-one. If we did a subject interview, it was a two-on-one. So in other words, there's two of us and versus one of them. But if we went out and made an arrest, it was like 
five on one because we just, you know, superiority of numbers. That's what we always went for. But, you know, you do an arrest, you make an entry, either an arrest or a search warrant, and the Bureau is very good on training. You need your training just kicks in, and everybody has a job to do. They do their job, and, of course, your you know, adrenaline is pumping, and, you know, your heart rate's going, but, you know, it's just that, it's like I said, your training kicks in, and you just get the job done. Wow. You know, if I'm getting close to that three years of experience in my career, and I'm thinking, I'd like to work for the FBI, you know, or maybe I'm getting close to getting out of school and I'd still need to get my three years in, but that's the goal. What can a student do or a young professional do to better position themselves to be attractive to the Bureau? For one thing, if you're starting out with a county degree, you're ahead of the game because the Bureau is always looking for accountants. People who think they're going to get into the Bureau with a criminal justice degree face a much higher it's a very difficult for them to get in. But the Bureau is always looking for accountants, for computer specialists, you know, people with, with uh, programming degrees or, you know, computer degrees are looking for engineers and people with second language abilities. So if you speak Spanish, do you speak Arabic, do you speak Mandarin or speak Cantonese, you know, your odds of getting to the Bureau can be very high. Okay. The answer to this may be obvious, but there's also probably a lot I don't know. You know, who is it not right for? Yeah. Who would the Bureau be a really bad fit for from a career perspective? <laughs> if you expect a 9-to-5 job or an 8-to-5 job, the Bureau is not for you. If you're comfortable living in your hometown, you don't want to move, the Bureau is not for you. The Bureau can transfer you from one day to the next. And it's called the needs of the Bureau. They can transfer you. When I was in a Bureau, you could be transferred to New York City or to wherever, L.A., some other place that wasn't home. For instance, my San Diego is my first office. I got lucky. You know, San Diego is a very beautiful town. But as far as being transferred there, you're always saying, all right, you no, know, am I going to stay here in San Diego for the rest of my career or am I being transferred out? You just don't know what's coming around the corner. And you just have to roll with it. Okay. Okay. Now, you eventually transitioned out of the Bureau. And I think you, did you say you retired? Was that yes. the reason? I retired, and okay. as a federal law enforcement agent, you can retire at age 50 with 20 years in, or and you're, you face mandatory retirement at 57. And so, you know, I was approaching retirement age, and I decided to go out on my own terms. And, you know, so I started looking for a job when I was 52 and got out of the Bureau when I was 54, and I went to work for a Fresno County firm here in San Antonio. Okay, okay. How did the experience with the FBI help you in what you were doing with the accounting firm? I guess, what were some similarities where, you know, you went to that job and said, oh, okay, I've done this before. And then what were some of the differences? Well, the difference is, is that life slowed down a lot. Huh. Uh, <laughs> because I mean, it got to be, you know, where life just slowed down. To put things in perspective, in my life in the Bureau, I was dealing with, you know, a bad day was when I was dealing with bodies, literally, bodies. And that happened on more than one occasion. And so, kind of like, talk about pressure. That's pressure right there. And so, to go into a world where, you know, you're not dealing with that type of immense pressure, like I said, life got simpler and it got a lot slower because I knew that I was never going to face that again. But on the upside to that, I knew how to deal with that pressure. I, I knew 
how to deal with the pressures, the business pressures. Because again, the pressures there were completely different, but one led me to develop or one led me to be better able to cope with the other. Okay. Yeah, I apologize. I laughed slightly there only because, you know, in the accounting world, few people would say, I went into public accounting and life slowed down. (laughs) (laughs) It did. I mean, but on the minus side, the excitement was gone. I mean, it was just like, oh, gosh, you know, because that everyday being different wasn't there anymore because, you know, it wasn't, hey, you get the call out and say, we need so you need to go down here because this happened and we need these people interviewed or you need to cover this lead. You know, for instance, 9-11, that was another all-hands-on-deck kind of thing where we were covering leads, even though it was in McAllen, Texas, and New York City was, what, 3,000 miles away. I mean, we were still covering leads for that down there. And that was, you know, three weeks out of my life where, you know, rightfully so, the Bureau would put 100% of its efforts into that case. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. So tell us about what you're doing now. Right now, you know, I left the Fresno County firm left there because I decided to go on my own. And I did two things. One, I established my own private investigator firm and also had my own accounting firm. So it's it's a marketing thing. The private investigator firm, I marketed as, you know, I can do litigation support. You know, I can do the forensic accounting side. And the accounting firm, I can still market that as strictly forensic accounting. So that's pretty much what I'm doing. But, you know, I have multiple cases going on. I've done it all. I've done civil work. I've done criminal work, I've, you know, attended trials, I've testified, I've been deposed. It's across the board. I've done, and also on the private investigator side, I could do surveillance. So I've done surveillance work because, you know, I also had that skill. So multiple things I can do. Sounds like you're pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's, you know, like I tell people, it's always a hustle. You know, you're always hustling for work. You know, even, you know, I, I'm blessed that a lot of attorneys here, and I primarily work for attorneys, know me and my reputation here in San Antonio, so they do give me a call. But you're always developing, you know, business contacts, business relationships, trying to make sure that your name is out there. Interesting. So that's Talon Investigations, is that? Yes, is that Talon okay? Investigations, yes. Talon. Okay, I thought that's what I saw. So where do you see Talon Investigations going, or your business in general? Where do you want it to be, you know, three, five years I- down the road? Of course, I wanted to be successful. You know, that's the number one priority. And sure. I still want to, you know, be contributing. And by far, my professional career is not over with. I don't see it being over with for a very long time. So I just want to, you know, continue to provide a good service. Yeah, just provide a good service. Okay. Have you gotten back to the pace that you were used to having in the Bureau? No, you know, nothing can replace that. I okay. mean, that was... You know, literally, you know, 50 hours a week plus, and that was always, you're always on the go because, you know, an agent has their own caseload. So, for instance, you know, the way I always put it is that you're working a case, you're finishing up another case, and you're always working on those, developing on a couple other cases. Things are just continually moving forward as far as investigation goes because, you know, your investigations are very long. You know, it's not uncommon for investigation to go four years, you know, or five years before to see, you know, some kind of adjudication. Oh, my gosh. You wouldn't have surprised me if you said two years, but I didn't realize four or five years. That's, yeah, wow. it can, you know, that's not uncommon. Of course, I had cases that went a lot shorter. But if you're talking a big case with a lot of moving parts and with a lot of people involved, 
you want to make sure that justice is done and, you know, you've covered everything and everybody's told their side of the story. And that's what you, you know, you want to make sure that, because, you know, you're dealing with people's lives, frankly, and you want to make sure that you did a thorough job and a thorough investigation. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you're doing very important work with very dramatic consequences. So Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, and the case agent, you know, is the driver of that investigation. That investigation rests in their hands, you know, so if it succeeds or fails or otherwise, you know, it rides with that case agent. They're the ones that have to have the motivation to talk to people and to get to the bottom of everything and see what actually happened. Hmm. You know, there's one question that was suggested by a listener a long time ago, and I added in as much as I can. It sort of depends on the guest and you know how long they've been in their career, but I, I think this would be really good for you. If you could go back in time and give your younger self just one piece of advice, what do you think that might be? You know what? It's probably enjoy the ride. You know, it's all going to work out. Enjoy the ride. You know, enjoy yourself. Live life. Very good. Very good. Well, before we get to the final three questions that I ask every guest, is there anything else the audience should know about working with the FBI that you didn't cover or I forgot to ask about? <laughs> you know, it's a very enjoyable career. It's very fulfilling. You know, like I tell people, you know, every job, every organization has its challenges and, you know, and people ask me now, you know, do you miss it? And my saying is, you know, you don't miss the circus, you miss the clowns. So you miss the people that you work with. And that's what I miss. You know, I miss the friendships and relationships I developed over the years with, you know, you know, all these people. Because, you know, like I said, I've very fortunately, you know, worked in San Diego, McAllen, and here. And, and over the course of that, you know, I've developed a lot of friendships, not only in the FBI, but, you know, professionally and other organizations and other law enforcement organizations and other organizations that were cooperating, you know, or helping me out in, in my investigation. And to be frank, you know, when you say you work for the FBI, it does turn heads because, you know, the Bureau does, you know, have the respect of other law enforcement agencies and the general public. Hmm. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. And it is the people you miss. You're right. I can see that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, I end every podcast with the same three questions, and so I want to be respectful of your time and get to those. The first one is frequently the easiest. What has been your proudest moment? Well, besides the birth of my children, probably graduated from the University of Texas with an accounting degree because that was a foundation for everything else. That was a foundation for earning a CPA and, you know, having the professional career that I did, but it all started there. That's it. That's probably my proudest moment. Well, that is a major accomplishment, particularly at that point in life. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us about a mistake you made, and of course, we want to know what you learned from it, but frankly, the bigger, the better. (laughs) Well, you know what? I I usually say this, yeah, I'm a father, just like I just mentioned, and I usually say this for my kids as a teaching moment. And luckily, I've only had to use it twice. I have three kids, and but I only have to use it twice. But, you know, so like I was telling you earlier, you know, when I was applying for the Bureau, you know, I did well in the written test, and I bombed the first panel. And so I had to spend a year in the penalty box and to take the second panel, to take the second panel interview. And San Antonio, I was processing through San Antonio, in other words, you know, doing all my interviews here to become an agent. And I got that call where I said, you know, the recruiter said, are you interested in applying? So, you know, applying to the bureau. Of course, I said, yes. He goes, I'll schedule for an interview. And, and he scheduled it. And he says, you know, your interview is on this day at this time. You know, 
be up here and, you know, and we'll do your second interview. So I went up, you know, got dressed up, you know, professionally, went up to the San Antonio FBI office, knocked on the, looked at the receptionist and said, I'm here, I'm here from a panel interview. And, and she's standing, she's behind this glass partition and she goes, wait a second. She has this puzzled look on her face. And of course, I'm wondering what the heck is going on. And next thing I know, the recruiter's coming out. And the recruiter told me, you're supposed to be in Austin. I said, what? I said, well, by this time, I had moved from, you know, South Texas to Austin. And he goes, yeah, you're supposed to be in Austin. And I said, no. He said, you said to come to the, uh, you know, I did my first panel here, and I thought I was here. And he looked at me, and I said, you know, I thought to myself, that's it. I am done. I am, there's no way these people are going to hire me because I can't even follow general directions. And he goes, no, and he goes, goes, you're right. I didn't tell you that. It's all on me. We'll have to reschedule. We'll just reschedule the interview. And I said, you know, I thanked him very, very much. And he goes, you know, it's a funny thing because one of the agents in San Antonio had driven up to Austin to do my panel. So we actually crossed each other on I-35 going in opposite directions. But, you know, there's there's a lesson, you know, like I tell my kids, you know, I said, there's a lesson learned in this thing. He said, I messed up, but I didn't give up. You know, in that was it. I messed up, but I didn't give up. You know, I tried, and so that was my pretty much embarrassing moment. Now the world knows. But anyway, that's it. I was curious what the lesson was going to be out of that because I was thinking the same thing. If you had not said, "Wait a minute," you know, if you hadn't have stood up a little bit for yourself, then you're right. I mean, they just wouldn't have hired you. He probably would have never went back and looked at that email or. Yeah, you know, well, it wasn't an email back then, of course, but yeah, you know, because it was 1987, oh. <laughs> and so it was, <laughs> you know, the recruiter did the right thing, and I forget his name, forgive me, but I forget his name, but he said, you know, you're right, I didn't tell you that it was going to be in Austin instead of San Antonio, so, but that was it. So, so that was, you know, I like I said, I thought, you know, the 26 years would have been down the drain, I mean, as far as my career path would have taken another turn. Well, thank you for sharing that. A couple other guests have shared something along similar lines where they learn that, you know, sometimes you have to tactfully speak up. And I think we need to hear that frequently. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? That I've ever received? Probably never be afraid to ask for help. Professionally, personally, always Admit to yourself, hey, I'm in a bind here and I need some help. And just know when to reach out your hand and know when to grab that other hand that's being offered to you. Because frankly, you know, people, you know, think that they can weather the storm by themselves or, you know, get through it by themselves. And they you know, also like I tell my kids, you know, I've been there before and I know what you're going through. And sometimes you just need to ask for help because, again, I could tell you what's, you know, I give you advice as far as what I think is going to happen based on your life circumstances at this point. And just again, just always never be afraid to ask for help. I have to ask, is that something you learn the hard way? Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, that is good advice to end this off. So thank you very much. We'll save the second biggest mistake that involves that one, maybe for a different episode. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for the audience, this has been another episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. If you haven't yet visited our home website, please do so. You can find the show notes for each and every episode, including this one with Fred Olivares, of course. That website is whereaccountantsgo.com. Once again, it's www.whereaccountantsgo.com. 
On that note, Fred, any final thoughts or words of wisdom you'd like to leave with the audience? Well, I guess just uh, like I've been saying, you know, life is full of surprises and you just have to roll with it. That is very good. We need to be reminded pretty frequently. Uh Well, thank you again to the audience for joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.